Dear friends, today we return to the ever magical and awe-inspiring world of Narnia. As with so many C.S. Lewis episodes before, I want to build today's episode around an actual reading from the pages. Today I've chosen a longer excerpt from book 6 called The Silver Chair, which is another great Aslan encounter scene. It is in many ways a calling narrative, not unlike the many calling narratives found in the Bible for people like Moses, Mary and the great prophets. But significantly, the interaction between Jill and Aslan for the first time offers wisdom as to how to remain faithful to a call, especially when things get rough. After reading the passage today, I'll allow a brief moment's pause to allow the Spirit to speak to you as he wills, before offering one of my reflections for those who want to receive it. You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. So our scene takes place quite early in the silver chair. Little backstory, our two main characters are Eustace and Jill, school children being bullied and harassed in some dodgy high school. They run away and hide, and Eustace, having travelled to Narnia before, instructs Jill to call on the name of Aslan, the great lion, so that he may rescue them. They do, and to their surprise, suddenly find themselves back in Narnia through a magical door. As they explore this beautiful land, with this being the first time for Jill, they realise that they are very, very high up on a mountain somewhere overlooking Narnia. Stepping near a cliff edge to get a better view, Jill tries to show off to Eustace about how brave she was despite his warning to come back. She then accidentally trips and Eustace tries to save her but instead himself tumbles off the cliff into the foggy clouds. At that moment, however, Aslan appears and with a steady breath blows under Eustace and carries him away and out of sight. The lion then disappears, and Jill is led to wonder whether it was all just a dream. She collapses in the grass, exhausted, and then suddenly everything goes really still, and all she realises is that she is suddenly very thirsty. Hearing the gentle sound of trickling water, she follows the sound to a running stream, and then the following scene ensues. As you listen, Try and put yourself in Jill's shoes, filled with both yearning and holy fear as you enter the presence of Christ. Jill came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone throws away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open, and she had very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill, and if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off the lion. How long this lasted she could not be sure, 
It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Eustace had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Eustace had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that, without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You needn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. Human child, said the lion, where is the boy? He fell over the cliff, said Jill, and added, Sir, she didn't know what else to call him, and it sounded cheeky to call him nothing. How did you come to do that, human child? He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? I was showing off, sir. That is a very good answer, human child. Do so no more. And now, here for the first time, the lion's face became a little less stern. The boy is safe. I have blown him to Narnia. But your task will be harder because of what you have done. Please, what task, sir? said Jill. The task for which I called you and him here out of your own world. This puzzled Jill very much. It's mistaking me for someone else, she thought. 
She needn't dare to tell the lion this, though she felt things would get into a dreadful muddle unless she did. Speak your thoughts, human child, said the lion. I was wondering, I mean, could there be some mistake? Because nobody called me and Eustace, you know. It was we who asked to come here. Eustace said we were called to, to somebody, it was a name I didn't know, and perhaps that somebody would let us in. And we did, and then we found the door open. You would not have called me unless I had been calling you, said the lion. Then you are that somebody, sir, said Jill. I am. And now hear your task. Far from here, in the land of Narnia, there lives an aged king who is sad because he has no prince of his blood to be king after him. He has no heir because his only son was stolen from him many years ago, and no one in Narnia knows where that prince went or whether he is still alive. But he is. I lay on you this command, that you seek this lost prince until either you have found him and brought him to his father's house, or else died in the attempt, or else gone back into your own world. How will I do this? said Jill. I will tell you, child, said the lion. These are the signs by which I will guide you in your quest. First, as soon as the boy Eustace sets foot in Narnia, he will meet an old and dear friend. He must greet that friend at once, and if he does, you will both have good help. Second, you must journey out of Narnia to the north, till you come to the ruined city of the ancient giants. Third, you shall find a writing on a stone in that ruined city, and you must do what that writing tells you. Fourth, you will know the lost prince if you find him by this, that he will be the first person you have met in your travels who will ask you to do something in my name, in the name of Aslan. As the lion seemed to have finished, Jill thought she should say something, so she said, Thank you very much, I see. Child, said Aslan in a gentler voice than he had used, perhaps you do not see quite as well as you think. But the first step is to remember. Repeat it to me in order the four signs. Jill tried and didn't get them quite right, so the lion corrected her and made her repeat them again and again until she could say them perfectly. He was very patient over this, so that when it was done, Jill plucked up the courage to ask, Please, how am I going to get to Narnia? On my breath, said the lion, I will blow you into the west of the world just as I blew Eustace. Stand still, in a moment I will blow, but first remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake up in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expected them to look when you meet them here. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. 
And now, daughter of Eve, farewell. Okay, so welcome back. There's so much richness in that passage, and it may well speak to different people on different levels. Today, I feel drawn to hone in on one feature, that of remembering and the importance of remembering in the spiritual life. By remembering here, I do not merely refer to the recollection of information, like for an exam, but rather to make present a past promise of God. Or even to make present a past act of God. You'll recall that Aslan tells Jill to remember the four signs he gives her and gets her to repeat them over and over again until they've become sort of second nature in her, precisely because Aslan knows that when she leaves the literal mountaintop and goes down to Narnia, she will become clouded by the air of the world. The precise words Aslan says to Jill are. Quote, Say the signs to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. End quote. Keen biblical readers will recall that this is very much what God commanded the Israelites to do regarding the great Shema instruction. You know, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, etc., etc. Uh, where God tells them, talk about these when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Remembering God's instructions is not just a good habit to foster; it is virtue that leads to eternal life. For in the Old Testament, the great Shema instruction was tantamount to a roadmap for living life itself. This feature of God telling the Israelites to remember is all over the Bible if you have the eyes to see it. Consider how the Jews even today celebrate the ancient Passover meal because God gave the Israelites instructions to do so, so that they will remember the deliverance He once enacted for them from slavery in Egypt. By representing the first Passover meal, Jews would forevermore remember the goodness of God, His power over their enemies, and His promise to take them into the promised land. Remembering this would become especially important when all hell breaks loose and Israel are indeed taken off into exile, where it is easy not to remember God's promise and goodness and deliverance. Sadly, many Israelites didn't and succumbed to foreign idolatry. 
In other words, they forgot their God and His goodness. Then, of course, is Jesus' own instruction at the Last Supper to do this in remembrance of me, from which Catholics obey through the celebration of Mass. Why is it important for us to remember what happened at the Last Supper? Because it reminds us, it makes present to us what God has already done for us on the cross, which is evidence of how much God loves us. To forget what Jesus has done for us is precisely what the enemy wants. And when we do forget, we start believing that we are unlovable, that God is not on our side, and that our lives are just a meaningless fog. When this happens, the signs given to us at the Last Supper, bread and wine becoming the body and blood of Christ, becoming the new and final sacrifice, these signs would suddenly seem obscure and distant. This is the reality of our fallen world. Most of us have had mountaintop experiences of God, like at a retreat, or at a pilgrimage, or at World Youth Day, where suddenly God's way seems very clear and attractive. But when we come down the mountain per se, we get swamped by the corruptions and values of a fallen world. This is why it is essential to remember what took place on the mountaintop and to bring that experience with us down the mountain into a world that so much needs it. The signs God gives us is not just for our own holiness, but so that we can be missionaries too. In our passage, Jill's literal mission was to find and rescue Prince Rillian, and it was for this mission that the four signs were initially given. So the question is, how do we remember the goodness of God? How do we keep the signs ever before our eyes? Well, rituals are important for remembering. Rituals are important for remembering. By ritual, I do not just mean formal liturgies and ceremonial gestures, though of course in the Catholic tradition that's exactly what the Mass is. <laughs> Rather, by ritual, I also mean any physical means of commemorating or highlighting an event. How does this look in my own life? Well, after a significant mountaintop experience, example, a retreat or a pilgrimage or my mission placement in Darwin, I identify the key grace from that experience and then literally draw a picture of it or some symbol of it and then stick it on my wall with blue tack over my desk so that literally every day I am reminded of what God has promised, what God has revealed. For example, I have a watercolour painting of the waterhole I encountered in Ayers Rock, Uluru, in the middle of Australia, when I was mysteriously drawn out into the wilderness. This is a testimony I explored in episode 25, if you want to know the full story. Today, when I am overwhelmed by experiences of spiritual wilderness, this painting speaks back to me. Don't forget, Lawrence, don't forget God's promise to you that in the middle of your greatest wilderness, there you will find me right at the centre. That promise I received nearly four years ago continues to sustain and nourish me today. By remembering it, I make that same grace present and active in my life today, changing me today. And this is the true original meaning of the Greek word for remembrance, and Jesus would have intended the word to have this significance. Now, I know not everyone's an artist that can draw images like that, but you don't have to be to ritualize a grace in your life. For some, it might just be stick figures, <laughs> or it could just be writing out a key Bible passage and sticking it next to your bed, or on your mirror where you brush your teeth every day. For others, it will be placing a key object, like a shell, for those of you who have been to the Santiago de Compostela, sticking it somewhere prominent so that you can see it daily, or maybe on your prayer altar. 
The important thing, though, is to physically do whatever you can to help you remember, because the Bible reminds us that remembering is key to spiritual flourishing. For your practical pilgrim exercise, I'm going to encourage you to do something I don't see much of as a spiritual director. That is, to remind and celebrate the victories God has already done in your life. So often I have directees coming in bringing problems to solve or faith questions to explore, and there's certainly a beautiful time and place for this, and they're important. However, there's something also important about simply savouring the goodness of what God has been doing and is doing. Paying attention to these graces actually helps us deepen in that grace, helping us remember it and then to live out of it. Try it. What would it be like to spend the next week or so during your prayer times simply deepening in the goodness of God? To recall a time when He spoke to you personally or encountered you profoundly. Remember these, savor them, and allow these graces from the past to now change your present. With that invitation, dear friends, I will leave you and love you. Until next time, journey forth, take care, and God bless.